0: All right, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here. Here's the real question, how many Bears fans? <laughs> I'm a Bears fan, it takes a lot of faith, so, you know. We're in church, it's appropriate. All right, so good morning, thanks for being here today. Last week, we got to see, we talked about what it was like for people to meet Jesus for the first time, like face-to-face, and that was truly awesome. And then we also learned what... what That Jesus really wanted was for people to know him, to get to know him, not just as an acquaintance, but to know him and do life with him. The other thing we saw last week was Jesus, he met his first few disciples. We got to see that interaction, the questions they asked, the questions he asked. And now we're going to move into John chapter two. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. If you use your phone or iPad, that's fine. No problem. That's what I do. Uh, John chapter two, we're going to start with verses one and two, and we're going to see what John wants us to know. And it says, John chapter one, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples also had been invited to the wedding. Now, when it says the third day, he's talking about one particular day, if you remember from last week, where John the Baptist was approached by the religious leaders and they were asking him, well, who are you? Why are you here? Who told you to do this? All that stuff. That's day one. Then day two after that, It tells us that John the Baptist saw Jesus walking and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First time he declares this publicly. That's day two. The next day, Jesus meets his first two disciples, Andrew and John. And Andrew then runs off and goes and gets his brother Simon, whose name's changed to uh, Peter. The day after that is when Jesus meets his next two disciples, Nathaniel and Philip. And now today, they're invited to a wedding. So John's going, okay, day one, day two. He just tells us, this is like a diary. This is what's happening. So in a span of a few days, there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. And John tells us that Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are invited to a wedding. And from this information, we can make a few assumptions. Number one, this was probably a close lit, close-knit community, that they were all invited. We also may have noticed that Joseph, Mary's husband, Jesus' earthly father, was not listed as one of those invited it wasn't because you know, there was a, 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 a breakdown. We think he probably had passed away by that time because he's no longer mentioned in any form. He was probably quite a bit older, and that's what we think happened. The other thing we can assume is that since Jesus was invited to this wedding, he was not seen as somebody harsh, boring, or carrying around a religious hammer, just going after people. He was a warm guy. This was a celebration. They wanted him there to celebrate as well. Now, because this was a cause for celebration, a wedding, it was a big deal back then. A lot of times today, they had good food, they had good music, and they had wine. They had wine at this wedding, they did. But here's where the story gets interesting and this is why it's also in the Bible. Verse three tells us, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, I wanna stop here because there's more than just wine running low. There's more going on here. During this time period, running out of wine at a reception would have been an enormous social faux pas. Huge, huge. It would have been terribly embarrassing, especially in that part of the world in that time period. A wedding was supposed to be a huge celebration and running out of something meant you weren't providing adequate hospitality. You may not have even cared enough about the people in attendance. It was a big dishonor. But we can also assume something else may have going on here. It's not in the text, but this is something that's possible, quite possible. The married couple may not have had adequate resources to provide a huge, big wedding. They bought what they could, and they hoped it would last. It simply did not. And John does not tell us this, but we also know Jesus showed no favoritism. While he was on the earth, he surrounded himself with everybody, right? but he also spent time with the less fortunate. So it's certainly plausible that Jesus does what he's about to do. We've heard this story, right? We know what's gonna happen. Out of ki- not just out of kindness, but also to help a couple that didn't have adequate resources to provide the wedding that they wanted. And again, before we go into that point, we also need to address, Mary is the one who points out to Jesus that they're running out of wine, right? We know that she brought him up. Now, the reason this is important We need to remember this. There is no written account of Jesus doing any miracle up to this point. This is it. How would she have known this? All right? You can say mother's intuition. Hmm, there's more than that. Like, and this is going to sound funny, but this is the way I think of it. You know, you heard of Superman, right? When he was a kid... His parents could not have known right off the bat all the stuff he was going to be able to do. Fly, bend steel, shoot lasers, all that kind of stuff, right? I know that sounds funny, but go with me. His parents had no idea. They knew he was special, God's chosen, but what did that entail? They had no idea. We know cuz we know these stories. We've read it. We know how it's go- We know what's going to happen. There's no way Mary could have known exactly what was happening. She knew or she knew something was coming. For example, think about this later on. And later on, Jesus fed 5,000 people, right? Do you remember this story? Jesus' disciples are out there. It's getting late. People are getting hungry. And the disciples are like, we got a crowd of you know, thousands of people. They're hungry. There's nowhere to go, no food. Jesus, what do we do? What do we do? And Jesus says, well, you take care of it. You feed them. That's the first thing he says. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? They've been terrified for about three seconds. <laughs> And that's why one of them says, with what? We We have like a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish. What Jesus was doing, in my opinion, he was also kind of throwing them a bone, leading them on a little bit. We can do this. Have faith, have faith, we can do this. And here's what's interesting. The disciples had already been there for the wedding. They saw him turn water into wine. And yet when this happens later on with all the people, they still don't have any idea what's possible. So again, we know these stories, they did not. This was all happening for the first time. Because we like to fill in the gaps of these stories, we know we, you know we know what's happening, they did not. They couldn't have known anything. But maybe, maybe also Mary just took a very, very good guess. But again, I don't think that's what it is. I think there's more to it. Jesus was getting more and more popular day by day. The word was getting out that he was the Messiah. And if the wine runs out at a wedding and people maybe get upset and it's going to look bad for the couple, it's not a bad idea to have the Messiah of the world right there. Right? I mean, we don't know what he's going to do, but that's not a bad thing. So I'm going to ask a question, could Mary have told him about the wine just thinking if anybody can make this better and make this smooth, it's going to be him. Right? That's it. What we do know, no matter what, Mary had absolute faith that Jesus could handle this we know that and that brings us to our first big point of today faith in Jesus is trusting in him when you cannot fathom how this is going to turn out that is huge that is big boy big girl Christian stuff faith is easy when we're all sitting in here you know air conditioning with our jerseys we're gonna go home to a lot of food be a great day right but what if you have no food What if you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, if you're going to live till tomorrow? There's certain parts of the world, that's what it's like. What if you get that bad diagnosis? What if you lose a family member or a friend tragically really quick? Where's your faith then? And that's what this is. That's where faith really, that's the true measure of our faith. Now there's also the other side of it. Life has a lot of good stuff that happens, right? And Jesus is there to celebrate with us. But the whole point is we need faith for the big unknowns. And that's what this evening is That's what's going on here. Jesus can handle this. So let's ask this question. Why? Why is Mary right now at this moment putting this in Jesus' lap? Especially when she has no idea, no experience to tell her what's going to happen. Well, John actually doesn't tell us. The man who wrote this book. But, we know, but knowing what we know about Jesus and Mary, we can make some safe assumptions. Number one... Mary had been sensing for a long time that Jesus' time was coming. She would have known that he was baptized by John the Baptist not too long ago. She would have known about the Holy Spirit coming down on him like a dove. You remember that story? She would have known that. That just doesn't happen. That was huge. She would also have known about his time in the wilderness where he was in there for 40 days and he was tempted by the devil. And if you're really that hungry, you know, turn these uh, rocks into bread. She would have known about that. She would have known about John the Baptist saying publicly to her son, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist had a habit of talking very loudly and directing people right at Jesus, right? That was his whole gig. Before Jesus was born, she was visited by an angel, right? She would have known his whole life that this was coming. She would have seen the disciples he was now gathering to himself. These were disciples, two of which had followed John the Baptist, and they were looking for the Messiah. And when they met him, they told each other, this is the one, this is him. Mary would have also known John the Baptist. They were related, Jesus and John. She would have known about his purpose, was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And now he's he's there telling everybody, it's him. She would have seen all these signs, and she would have knew something big was coming. Something was happening. And so that's why she goes to him and tells him the wine has ran out. And this is his response. It's in verse four. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, let's be honest. When you read this, it sounds like when Jesus says, woman, he's putting her in, his, in her place, right? Am I the only one that's thought that? Are you serious? Nobody here was like, that, what does that mean? Really? All right. Yeah. Now, for those of you here who have mothers, growing up, if your mother ever told you to do something and you turned to her and said, Woman, (laughs) see, I'm a wooden spoon survivor. Anybody else? Right? Okay. That would not have ended well. Right? The same is true for Jesus and Mary. He, that's not what he said. That's not how he said it. Especially because you, you can be like, how, why would he say that to Mary? I mean, it's Mary. She carried him for nine months. Well, we have to remember some, a couple of big important things. Jesus and the disciples spoke a language called Aramaic, which is kind of close to Hebrew. Uh, the New Testament was actually written in Greek, ancient Greek. Okay. It was then translated into Latin and then eventually translated into Old English not Modern English, Old English You ever tried to read something from the 14 or 1500s? It's very hard to read and then it was eventually translated into Eng- uh, Modern English So it went through a lot of different languages to get to where we are now and meaning and inflection and what he actually said can be difficult to translate across all those languages and time Here's an example of what I'm talking about When I say the phrase, why did the chicken cross the road? See, I didn't have to finish it. You guys know that, right? You know it's a joke. Now imagine we had to translate that through four languages and in 2000 years from now on the other side of the earth, someone needs to read that and understand it's a joke. That's kind of hard to do. How are you going to do that without having to write like 12 pages? of Hey, listen, man, this is the joke. This is the background. This is why, right? So when he says, woman, we make assumptions on what we know today and we would never talk like that, but there's more going on. Jesus was not being disrespectful. What he was doing was shifting the very nature of their relationship. Let me explain, true, she was his mother and she carried him for nine months, right? Which I'm sure he was eternally grateful for. But now his public ministry was starting. His purpose on this earth was different. And even she had sensed that the time was now coming. She knew from before his birth that this day was going to come. She was seeing the signs now that he was an adult, and he was saying he sh- she shouldn't seek things from him from a mother son relationship. He was saying everything is different now, and whatever he does from here on out, he does at the direction of his father in heaven. So when he says, "Woman," He's saying woman. He's not saying, Mom, I got this. Right? Once he says woman, meaning I'm no longer your son. I am the Messiah. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you'll notice Mary was not miffed. She was not upset. She didn't reach for a wooden spoon, right? So we can assume that she was actually emboldened. This didn't deter her because of what she says in verse 5. Let's look at that. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now at first, she only brought the issue of no wine to Jesus. Like it was just between the two of them. Now she's bringing in all the servants. She's raising the stakes. And she says, do whatever he tells you. Which shows, again, she had faith in him. She does not know how he's going to do, what he's going to do. Just listen to him. Maybe he was going to do something else but she had complete and total faith. Now the story goes that there were six stone water jars nearby and they were empty and they were actually used for ceremonial washing. And Jesus tells the servants, well, fill them to the water, fill them to the brim. And so they did. Then he said, now take some out and give it to the master of the banquet. He didn't say, bring me a little. Let me take sure it makes, you know, make sure it's good stuff. You know, bring the cap, let me smell it. It was a good year. It wasn't like that. He said, take it straight to the master of the banquet and let him have some. And when the master tastes it, he was really surprised how good it was. Then the story goes, he pulls the groom aside. And he says, listen, what people usually do is they bring the good stuff out first. Then when people have had a little bit too much, you bring out the cheap stuff. That's actually what he said. We don't get to hear the groom's response, we don't know, but um, he had to have been just as surprised because he didn't buy six stone jars of really good wine. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us why the reception ran out of wine, but one potential reason, again, probably makes sense is the couple was not well off. They bought what they could and hoped it would last. It did not. And when Jesus turned the water into wine, he made a lot of it. Those six stone jars held about 30 gallons each. Six times 30 is what, real quick? 180. He made 180 gallons of really, really good wine. Think about that. Whatever was left over after the wedding, the couple could have sold to help them on their new life, to pay off debts. Now again, I want to be clear, the Bible does not tell us that. That is just my mind right? It's only a guess. But we have to remember when Jesus performed a miracle, it was just not about, hey, good card trick, where'd the, you know, where'd it go? What he did served a real purpose. Number one, to prove that he was the Messiah. And number two, there was always genuine good that came out of it. Now, John chapter two continues and it switches to a whole nother story where from Jesus turning water into wine, where Jesus now chases money changers out of the temple courts. Go straight to verse 14. It says, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, before we go into why this makes Jesus mad, let's understand what is going on. The reason so many Jews were present is that it was Passover, huge holiday for them. And there are estimates that as many as 500,000 people descended on Jerusalem at that time from the outlying towns and nearby countries, if you could get to Jerusalem, you were required to do that and they all went. And the reason animals were being sold is because each of those, every person was required to do some sort of sacrifice, depending on the sin, depending on what, there was just a lot of reasons. And it was way easier to buy your animal once you got to Jerusalem, than bring it with you that whole way. So it created a huge demand for animals in Jerusalem at that time. And with so many people coming from different towns, different countries, they were bringing in a lot of foreign currency. And because the religious leaders had decided not to accept foreign currency, everyone had to exchange their money once they got to town. And so that's why they set up these booths, these money changers. And of course they didn't do this for free, they charged a fee to do this. In addition to this, there was also a mandatory temple tax everyone had to pay, which is the equal, equal to about two days of work. So here's an example. If we were all Jews, if you were have, going to Jerusalem, this is an example of what you'd have to pay. First, when you got there, you'd have to exchange your foreign coins into the local currency for a fee. And the money changers never intentionally gave you a dollar-for-dollar dollar exchange rate. They always lowered it by at least 15%. So if you came with $100, now, was it, well, now what was it? $85. That was off the top. They haven't even charged you your fee to turn it into local dollars yet. Then you had to pay their acquired temple tax. But here's where it gets worse. The religious leaders were the ones who rented out the space in the temple courts for the money changers. They also rented out the space for the boost for the people to sell the animals that were overpriced because the demand was so high. So you had this whole system that basically took money from you at every point. And guess where all that money went? Right to the priests, the Pharisees, the temple coffers. It'd be like today. We just saw pictures of a baptism, right? If you went to there, we charged you to park your car. You couldn't bring your own towel, you had to buy one of ours. It said Calvary Chapel Sebastian on it. (laughs) Couldn't bring your own swimsuit, you had to buy one of ours. It said Calvary Chapel Sebastian on (laughs) it. We paid you a water fee, a chlorine fee, and a just-in-case-we-forgot-something fee. What would that do to your faith? It would, cru- it would crush it. It would be awful. So this is the situation. This is what Jesus sees when he goes into that temple. And this is one of those stories that at some point when someone comes to believe in Jesus Christ, they need to understand because there's this idea out there that Jesus is this, everything's great, everything's cool, just nice hippie guy. You no, know, we all love, everybody's love. In this story... We're gonna read, there's a grown man who went over to a tree, broke off some branches, made a whip out of it, and then chased dozens of grown men away. Let's read that, verse 15 and 16. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both the sheep and the, so he was going getting the animals out of there too, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, He said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So imagine going to like a farmer's market and someone there got mad about something. I know it sounds funny, but this is exactly what happened. And they go to a tree, they pull off a couple branches and they make a whip out and they go through and they just start whacking people, chasing them out. This is what Jesus did. This is kind of, I know we kind of laugh, but think about it, how, what that would look like. And let's be honest, this put Jesus on a collision course with the high priest and the Pharisees. You do not do this in the temple and go unnoticed. This was big. He was was impacting their ability to make money, lots of money. And again, where the booths and stuff were, this wasn't in the inner temple courts, in the inner parts of the temple. It was rather in the outlying uh, courtyard And what this is significant because that was the only area that Gentiles were allowed in. And Gentiles are non-Jews. How many Gentiles here today? (laughs) Probably every one of us, right? So what Jesus was doing was not only clearing the temple, he was clearing out the temple courts so Gentiles could worship again. See, that is special. He was reclaiming the only area that foreigners could worship in. It was more than just about money. It was about restoring the purpose of the temple, which is about prayer and worship and getting close to God. And when Jesus does this, we know the disciples, man, they must have been shot, right? What is going on? But then it also tells us they remembered a verse from Psalm 69 that says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal, Now that means to have great enthusiasm, great passion. Kind of like, oh, we're gonna get your own football team. Woo, right? Jesus was extremely passionate about chasing people out of the temple, restoring it to its original purpose. So much so, he was willing to go break a branch off a tree and go after dozens and dozens of people and chase them out. And this would have been a big deal this is something that did not go unnoticed by the religious authorities. But you see, this scenario shows the very heart of Jesus. He wasn't concerned about being popular or what, who that would make angry. His only concern was for lost people and creating a system where they could then worship God again. And again, let's look at this. Let's look at it from the angle. of Let's assume we were the people coming from out of town. Each one of us is a foreigner making that journey. And this was not a one or two day thing. You couldn't catch an Uber and just you know, zip right over to Jerusalem and go back. This was a long period. Remember, their whole purpose, the way Jews back then understood their relationship with God is he was holy, untouchable. You can't get anywhere near him. And the only thing you could kind of do was sacrifice an animal to pay for your sins. And it only kind of made you less unholy. It didn't fix you permanently. Only for a little bit. And you had to keep doing it. Their relationship with God was completely different than ours. They knew him as distant, holy, untouchable. They were sinful. There was even a part of the holy, the, the part of the temple, the holy of holies. The only one person could go in there at one time a year. It was the high priest. Not just the priest, the high priest only for a short time once a year. And before that, he had special washing, special clothes, all this kind of stuff. And if he got any of it wrong, guess what happened to him? He died. He died. Now, you see me walking back and forth up here. You see the band, right? You know you guys can walk up here and you are not going to be struck dead, right? Sounds funny, but I didn't have to tell you that. That's not a joke, right? They knew in their own temple, there was a place they could not approach or what would happen. Tell me that's not terrifying to a, to a point. Like, we, I, you know, we know that, but I don't think we take that seriously enough. Like, what if this area up here Like only Pastor Dave Folkerts could touch that once a year. Pastor Joey's here, myself, Clues. If any of us touched it or got too close, we would drop dead. We're pastors. What does that make you feel like? You in the front row need to be careful. Don't trip and fall this way. But seriously, right? That would be terrifying. That was their relationship with God. And yet they traveled days, sometimes weeks, to get to the temple. When they got there, they had their money automatically decreased 15%, whatever they brought. Then they had to pay a fee to get it to the local money. Then they had to pay their tax. Then they had to pay for their overpriced animals, all of which was owned by the high priest and the Pharisees. What would that do to your faith? It would crush it. It would crush it. And so that's what was going, that's why Jesus was so passionate about this. He would not have it. Times were hard enough. I mean, just going through times now, we've all experienced rough stuff, right? Imagine if your religion did that to you on top of it. That's the point. It'd make a difficult situation so much worse. So Jesus was being zealous for the people to get right with God so that they had a chance because he knew what was happening. They were being squeezed for every dollar. So he chased them out. He cleansed the temple. Verse 18 tells us, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove you authority to do this? Obviously Jesus got their attention, but let's look at that. They're not concerned with whether it was right or wrong or whether they were right or wrong. Who told you you could do that? That's what they're asking. Notice they don't really care about the people. They don't care about the effect it's having on people. They're no longer pursuing the people, the foreigners, to help them get right with God. They're worried about losing their source of revenue. They have this huge, beautiful temple. Serves no purpose. No purpose. And that's why Jesus responds in this way. It's in verse 19. He says, destroy this temple, and I'm going to raise it again in three days. This is where Jesus speaks for the first time about his death and resurrection. Again, we know the story, we know what's gonna happen. You know, you you see a cross, you know, right? Disciples didn't know. They didn't get it. I mean, Jesus was kind of saying things, but let's be honest, they did not go, okay, A plus B equals C and then you carry the four and that means he's gonna die on the cross. It wasn't that clear. And before John the Baptist, just a couple days ago, was the first one to say, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you didn't know the story of Jesus dying on the cross, you'd be like, wait, what? What does that mean? If you, take the, if you take away the cross and we know Jesus died on the cross, what does that even mean? Let's be honest, we don't know. It sounds awesome, sounds big. And now Jesus is being very specific about what's gonna happen. He says, the current temple, which serves no purpose, is useless. You guys are going to tear it down. And he doesn't notice, he, notice he doesn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple. You are, which means they're going to put me on the cross. You're going to do that. And then I'm going to be raised from the dead. And in three days, this whole temple system that you guys have is going to be destroyed. It's going to be built on me. I'm going to be the conduit between God the Father and you guys. We're going to restore everything. Notice the need for a sacrifice does not change, does it? Someone still has to pay that price. Someone still has to cover that cost. And so he's going to do that. We're still sinful. We're still separated from God. But now the Messiah is here to change things and make things new. The, t- the temple had always been the focus of worship. And now Jesus was going to be that focus. And again, look at verse 19. He says, destroy this temple. He didn't say he was going to do it. He meant they were going to do it. And he was going to rebuild it after three days. Now, even that, the religious leaders don't get it. They actually say to him, and you'll see this in your Bible, yeah, it took like 46 years to build this thing. You're going to do it in three days. They're being very little. You can tell they don't get it. And to be fair, the disciples didn't either. Look at verse 22. It tells us after Jesus was raised from the dead, after They remembered what he said. And they're like, oh, oh. They're putting the pieces together. So it was a very big statement that not everybody understood, but he still made it all the same. Now let's pause for a moment and let's look at the bigger picture. Today we started out our story with Jesus turning water into wine. It's a story of conversion, right? He takes water, which they pulled out of a well, and they put in jars that they used to wash with, right? Not valuable. And what does he do? He turns it into something extremely valuable. Extremely valuable. Turns water into wine. Next we proceed with Jesus. He clears out the temple. He clears out the impurities, the money changers. And he makes it safe again for Jews and non-Jews. He doesn't make a distinction. He makes the temple back, tries to bring it back to what it was supposed to be. And this is going to bring us to our final point for today. The first one that we talked about earlier was faith in Jesus means trusting in him when you can't fathom how it's going to turn out, right? That's number one. That's a big one. The second one is that Jesus removes our sin. Again, we kind of know that because we've read the Bible, been to Sunday school, but they were all learning this for the first time. But this is huge. This is critical to knowing Jesus Christ because you can't say, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian without knowing he took away your sin. And there's several Bible verses I want to share with you that say all this. Let's go to that now. Mark 1, 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. What? Forgiveness is, is like removing, the removal of sin. Luke 3, 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance. Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. We say that in communion. That's what that's about. And then Acts 2, 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. What? For the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive those, for the removal of your sins. The debt needs to be paid, and Jesus did that. Like Jesus taking useless water and turning it into wine, he makes us something special. We were something without value, we're distant, we were sinful, and he changes that. It doesn't happen because of our power, because of his. And then he wipes us clean, he makes us new. Just like with the big temple in Jerusalem with the money changers, Jesus tore all that down and built it back on himself. He's the foundation, he's the temple. That's what this is about. And with every great miracle that Jesus did, it was always about proving that he was the Messiah, that he was who he said he was. The miracle itself didn't bring faith, it simply proved who he was. Faith grows in time. And what's so great about this is what Jesus says is he takes lost people, people that are damaged without hope, people that cannot see what's going to happen day to day, and he gives them hope. He washes them clean. He makes them new. He brings them into the family of God. And God says, I know the very hairs on your head. I know, and I know you. I made you on purpose to have a relationship with me. So the question is, everybody here and those watching on the internet, do you know that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you know he took your sins away? Do you know that he can take you no matter how you are? Lost, confused, messed up, sinful, that accounts to all of us. But he is here. He's in the the business of making people new. Every person. He can do it for you. So if you have not asked Jesus into your life, then I want you to do it today. In a minute, we're going to say a prayer. And the words I'm going to say, you can say them quietly right there between you and Jesus. There's no charge. Completely free. You can do it again and again. And it's our job in this church. It's our desire is for you to know Jesus Christ, your Messiah. That's what this is about. So let's pray. Father, I believe in your son, Jesus. Today I ask you to come into my life and make me new. I am not worthy of you or the forgiveness and the salvation that you bring but I still come before you. Help me. Change me. Make me more than I am. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Help me to trust you and lean on you with all my hopes and fears, even when I cannot fathom how you will be there for me. Be with me through all life's ups and downs. Lay out your path before me and lead me to a new life, the one you've planned for me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for giving me this life that I have. In Jesus' name, amen.